Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. To join me in prayer. And now, Lord, we come before you this morning. We did not come this morning to hear a man. We came to hear your word. We so desperately need to hear that whisper. So please, Holy Spirit, show up this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, last night, I had a nightmare. I dreamt that I forgot to take the offering. (laughs) And Pastor Kurt came back, and there was no church. (laughs) And then I went back to sleep, and then my phone rang at 4.30 in the morning, and it was Wayne Peterson. Wayne, if you're watching, you're in trouble. So this morning, I'd like to read the scripture to you from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you underneath the pew, the chair there. And I I really want to encourage you to follow along. Now, I like the New King James Version. I think what we use here is New Living Translation, which is a great translation. So there may be some slight differences, but... I want to begin by reading just uh, the first four verses in the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, and then I'm going to jump over to chapter 2, but I'm only going to read eight verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, In the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So that's The first four verses in chapter 1. Now we jump over to chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you're not sick, this is nothing, and I don't want you to miss this, church. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? What do you want me to do? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, chapter 2. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house, don't miss this one, that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. May God bless the reading of his word. So I've been a pastor for over 35 years, almost 40. And speaking in front of people is nothing new. I don't even get nervous about it anymore because it's not about me. It's about you. And I'm so excited to bring this portion of scripture to you. But I have to tell you that I've changed. I'm not the same person when I first started out in ministry. You see, when you first start out in ministry, usually here's the way it works. You go to Bible college. I did that. I got a BA in Bible. And then if you're blessed enough, you go to seminary. And seminary is an additional two to three years. I think it took me seven. (laughs) And you learn theology. You learn how to read ancient Hebrew. You learn how to read ancient Greek. You sit in classes with some of the giants. Pastor Kurt and I have talked about some of the men and women that we've studied under. And so then you go into your first church and you have no idea how to run a meeting. You can tell your board how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but you don't know how to navigate relationships because that's not taught in seminary. That is taught in the school of hard knocks. And some of you know what I'm talking about. When I was in my 50s, I really felt like God was calling me out of pastoral ministry and into another part of the kingdom. That kingdom was Christian counseling. And many of you know that I actually started a Christian counseling center right here in Naples. To my knowledge, I'm the only clinical mental health counselor that counsels using biblical principles. And it's been going great. And I I, I love counseling. But there's a dark side to that. And the dark side is that now, when I read through the scriptures, I see the scriptures through the eyes of a shrink. (laughs) 
there's a good side to that and there's a dark side to that. The dark side is that now when I read the Bible and I read, for example, I don't know, I'm just uh, Moses, for example. T take a, a look at the life of Moses. Did you know that Moses lost his temper and killed a man out of anger? Anyone here ever done that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> now when I read that portion of scripture, the first thing that pops into my mind is this guy could benefit from some anger management classes, right? And then you, you look at the life of David. Here's a guy who has absolutely everything. He's up on the roof one night. It's really hot. He's on his lanai. He just so happens to see a beautiful woman bathing. And he says, I have to have her. So what does he do? Even though he could have anybody that he wants and he's already married, he has his servants bring the woman to his chambers. He commits adultery, and then he has her husband murdered, and then he tries to cover it up. Hello, can you say narcissist? <laughs> I mean, and then look at the Apostle Paul. I'm convinced the Apostle Paul was a complete workaholic. <laughs> 70, 80 hours a week. Some of us did that, right? When we were in our 20s and 30s, remember that, Jack? Yeah, we did. So I look at the stories in the Bible now differently than I did before. So I came to this text in Nehemiah, and I thought, what if Nehemiah came to my counseling office this week? And what if he said, Dan, I just need to talk with somebody. What would you see in my notes? This is actually the book that I use when people come into the office. And, um, you know, because I'm part-time here and part-time there. And so I sit down and I, and I use this book and I tell everybody, I say, listen, you can look at any of the notes that I write down. There's nothing top secret here. I'm not writing down something like this person's really messed up or you need counseling because that's why they're there. But I want to share with you, through the eyes of a shrink, what I see here. If Nehemiah were to come to my office, this is what you would see in my notes. So I'm going to let you look at something confidential. Are you ready? Number one, I would write down that Nehemiah is a man who's struggling with his identity. He's struggling with his identity. I just write that down. Struggling with identity. Say, Dan, where do you get that from the text? So in 586 BC, see, this is where seminary kicks in. <clears throat> in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, and this has been verified through archaeological digs. This isn't even up for debate. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon, 600 miles, he takes his army and he goes all the way west to Jerusalem and he sacks the city. The nice thing about the Babylonians as opposed to the Assyrians, the Assyrians 722 wipe out Israel. Dawn, if you're watching, you'll like that because you know how Dawn's like really into dates, right? 722 Assyria, 586 Babylon. The Assyrians would just kill everybody. That was how they conquered countries. But the Babylonians were smarter because they thought to themselves, why should I just kill everybody when I can just haul everybody back to Babylon and turn them into my slaves? I mean, wouldn't it be great if you had somebody that could just wash your car or make your food? Now, Nehemiah 
was not a part of the exile in 586. He hadn't even been born yet, but his grandparents were. He has lived his entire life in what is, was ancient Persia. And he's worked his way up the political food chain to the second most important job in the country. He is the wine taster. Now you say, why is that such an important job? Well, you know, whenever you're a leader, people try to kill you. And so uh, the king would never partake of any food or any wine until the food taster and the wine person would sample the goods. And so we're going to get into that in a little bit later. But notice, Nehemiah, he's, he's, he's a Jew. He's 100% Jewish, but he's not living in a Jewish land. He's living under captivity. And he discovers one of his brothers, and uh, most commentators believe that Hananiah was actually the blood brother of Nehemiah, and he's working in Jerusalem, and he comes, he makes the 600-mile journey by horse or by foot, and Nehemiah says, what's going on in our hometown? And Hananiah says, the place is a train wreck. The place is a disaster. And we look right here in the text when Nehemiah hears that, verse 4 so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. So he would come into my office and say, Dan, I'm sad because this is the life that I'm living, but that's the life I really want. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you're living a life but it's not really the life you want. And it may not even be the life you were designed for, but that's where you find yourself. You know, it's interesting. I have a very good friend who adopted a young man from China many years ago. And the family's going through great difficulty. Now, this thing gets blasted out all over the internet, so I am changing this story somewhat. Follow me? but the details of this story are pretty much true. And his son, now in high school, is trying to figure out who he is. This is quite common in counseling. It actually happens all the time, where a family adopts a child, they're raised here, but they come to a point in their life where they wonder about their home country. And, and they're divided. And that's kind of an extreme example, but I think for all of us, we have in our mind, here's the life that, that I want to live, but this is the hand that was dealt to me. You know, maybe you're a parent, and your kids are no longer in the home, and you thought you were a good parent, but apparently you weren't. You were but maybe you have one kid that says you weren't. And so you're struggling with your identity. Who am I really? Or maybe you're a businessman or businesswoman, and you know, you, you worked your whole life. Your whole life, you sat in meetings with very powerful people. 
not making this up. Last week, I literally sat in the hospital with a gentleman who's affiliated with our church, and he told me stories about hanging out with Ronald Reagan. How fun would that be? I mean, I think it would be fun. And he just talked with me about, you know, all this different, these different individuals, names that I could totally name drop right now here on Sunday morning, and, and all the places he had traveled and the money that he had made. And he says to me, Dan, now I don't know what to do with myself. Crisis of identity. Do I play golf all day long? Do I just walk Fifth Avenue all day long? What do I do now? You may be here this morning in your 70s, 80s, 90s. I think we have one person who's 100 not attending the service this morning. You know, God has a plan for you. It's not too late. There's still time for you to do what it is that God has put on your heart I, um, I don't know where that book is. How many of you have ever read The Purpose Driven Life? There's The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church. I love what Pastor Rick Warren says here. He says, you are not an accident. So I'm saying that to you this morning. You're not, nobody here is an accident. Your birth was no mistake or mishap, and your life is no fluke of nature, Nehemiah. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He was not at all surprised by your birth. In fact, he expected it. Crisis of identity. We all go through it. That's what I'd put in my notes. Note number one. Note number two is I would tell you that I think Nehemiah is a man that is struggling with depression. I think he's struggling with depression. Again, you say, Dan, where do you get this from the text? Listen again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, wine is before him. I took the wine, I gave it to the king. Notice what he says here. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. The text doesn't say that Nehemiah had never been sad before. He, it just says he'd never been sad in the king's presence. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. In ancient times, if you were sad in front of the king, it was off with your head. Seriously, you you were not allowed to be sad in the presence of Persian kings, or for that matter, Babylonian kings. And if you gave off any sort of, I'm having a hard day, they just got somebody else. And so Nehemiah, right here, he says, I'd never been sad in the presence of the king before. And notice this Artaxerxes character, he seems like a pretty, pretty solid guy to me because he says to Nehemiah, why is your face sad? Because I'm pretty sure you're not sick. I'm painting with a broad brush, but in Native American culture, it's very common to hear this phrase, you can say what you want, but the eyes don't lie. I meet with people all the time. It's actually my job to meet with people. It's not even work. I love it. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people in the church, people who have grown up in the church, and I'll say, how are you doing? Oh, great, you know, great, we love our church. I read my Bible every day, usually. I pray, I'm on this committee. And then I look at their eyes, and their eyes tell a different story. You see, when I first started out in ministry, you could fool me. You can't fool me anymore. And I, I want to point out something that I have seen my entire life in ministry. And I'm sad to say this, but the church does a really good job at telling its people, you shouldn't be depressed. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be anxious. That's not from heaven, dear ones. That's from the other place. Because yes, I am a follower of Jesus. Yes, I am a Christian. But you know what? I'm also a man. And bad things happen. And there are days I don't want to get out of bed. Don't raise your hand. But do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, there are times when I'm just like, God, what's up here with that? Why did this happen? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I... I brought my car to the Volkswagen dealership. I thought it just needed a, a, a little fixing up. And the look on the guy's face when he came to talk to me in the waiting room was, you're gonna spend a lot of money to fix this up. I was depressed. Ended up buying a new car. Now I'm really depressed. But notice what Nehemiah says. Uh, he, he's like, what? May the king live forever. It's right here in the text. Why shouldn't I be? Why shouldn't I be depressed? Depression is part of life. We get depressed. I bet you anything, right now, you are conscious of the thing that is depressing you. Now, the thing about depression is that if it gets so debilitating that you can't get through your day, that's when you got to talk with somebody. You don't have to talk to a professional. You don't have to talk to a shrink. But you got to talk to somebody. And so the king says, I want to know what's going on. Notice Nehemiah says, I became dreadfully afraid. He didn't know if he was going to lose his life. There's some vulnerability. You have to have one person in your life, and especially for men, you have to have one person in your life you can trust. One person that you can tell your story to and they won't blab to the whole church. Are you here this morning and you're depressed? I'm here to tell you it's okay. I'm giving you permission to be a little sad. I don't want you to stay there, but it's okay. Third thing that I would write down in my notes, and I would say this, without reservation, I would say Nehemiah, is a person of faith. In fact, I would say deep faith. Notice again in verse 4, the king said to me, what do you want me to do? And then there are just a couple of words here. Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Just like that. He didn't call a prayer meeting. He didn't pray for an hour. His prayer was just, oh, Jesus, help me. Did you ever have a prayer like that? You know, sometimes I really believe, you know, if you've been raised in church, you know how important prayer is, right? And we're supposed to pray, right? Go like this. 
Don't be so pious. We're supposed to pray. But you know, sometimes the best prayers are just things like, oh God, Lord, especially if you drive in Naples, dear Jesus. <laughs> That's what he did. I have to tell you, in my practice, I see all kinds of people, believers and people who are thinking about it. I don't discriminate. Anybody can come to the practice. But I'm going to tell you this without reservation, that the people who seem to do the best are people of faith. Any Raiders of the Lost Ark fans here? Any Harrison Ford fans? I've seen all the movies, love them. My wife and I recently went to see um, the most recent one. I don't even remember the name of it. What I do remember is I've never been in a theater where they tried to ser serve me food. Um, you know, there's one at the mall. It's a restaurant. I just wanted to go see the movie. And so we're sitting there seeing this Harrison Ford movie. And the most famous line in the movie is where Harrison Ford says to this woman that he's on this adventure with, he says that it doesn't really matter what you believe in. What matters is how strongly you believe. Guess what? Great movie line, horrible theology. Totally matters what you believe and in whom you believe. We don't just come here to church just because we're religious people. You know, we come here because we believe in the person and work of Jesus. We believe he's still alive. That's Easter Sunday. I'm pretty sure Kurt will be preaching that day, so please come back. It does matter what you believe in. And Nehemiah just says right here, so I prayed to the God of heaven. People of faith still get depressed, still get anxious about stuff, still their car breaks down, sometimes their kids are rebellious, sometimes they struggle with health issues. We are not exempt from this fallen world. We too live in this blender. But people of faith are different. I think I've shared this before you, church, before. When Janet and I first moved to Naples, I had an internship at a Val Hospice. You know, Glenna started, our own Glenna started a Val Hospice. I can't tell you how amazing that place is for people that are in their last days. But I can tell you this, and I'm pretty sure Glenna would back me up on this that there is a huge difference when people check out, people of faith and people who don't have faith. I've seen it with my own eyes. Amen, Glenna? It's different. There's something's going on. Nehemiah was a person of faith. And then finally, number four, I really believe that Nehemiah was a candidate for solution-focused therapy. You're like, Dan, what is solution-focused therapy? Well, there are all kinds of different therapeutic models. There's reality therapy. There's Rogerian therapy. Uh, you know, Carl Rogers, some of you guys re remember that name. There's psychoanalytic therapy. You know, that's sitting on the couch, tell me about your mother. Um, that's not what I do. 
There's narrative therapy, there's, uh, you know, CBT, there's REBT, there's DBT, I could just go on and on. There's probably a hundred different kinds of therapies. I like solution-focused therapy because I think it's biblical. Again, from the text, what does Nehemiah do? Notice that when the king says, what do you want me to do? Nehemiah has a plan. Rule number one in counseling, you don't tell people what to do. You don't try to solve their problem. You work with them because if they don't own it, they won't solve whatever it is that's depressing them or why they're anxious. Notice, Nehemiah says this. <clears throat> he says, okay, king, you've asked me, if I found favor in your sight, here's what I want to do. And I'm just going to pick out some highlights. Send me to Judah. I want to rebuild the wall. I set him a time. I'm literally reading from the scriptures to you. Let letters, notice the future tense, be given to me. Allow me to pass till I come, future tense, to Judah. Give me a letter for to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must, future tense, give me timber so that I can make future tense beams for the house that I, future tense, will occupy. This is what I love about solution-focused therapy. It's really just biblical therapy. You got to have a plan. You got to get with somebody. And if you say, Dan, I, I don't have a plan, then, then find somebody that can help you make a plan. You know, one of the worst things you can do in this life is feel sorry for yourself. This is one of the things I love about the older generation. I guess I'm including myself, sort of. I'm still one of the youngest people here, guys. <laughs> I love the fact that the older generation doesn't sit around. You guys are movers and shakers. How can we fix this? Now, I want to be very clear in saying, you know what? I am old enough to know there are some things you can't fix this side. But notice what I said, this side. We serve a living Savior, and he has the answers. Freud didn't have the answers. Carl Rogers didn't have the answers. They had some good things to say, don't get me wrong. But Nehemiah was a man of faith, and in times of crisis, he had a plan. You know, we all go through a lot of stuff. I'd like you to watch a video of a young lady who was in time of crisis in her life, and she found her way out. My name is Julia, and I'm 19 years old. In 2017, was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. I almost lost this battle. I didn't think it was gonna get better, but it did. I've had anxiety since I was a little kid. I always had this feeling that something terrible was gonna happen, and that presented itself in tightness in my chest. I'd get really shaky. I would have a lot of stomach pain. Those were the physical ways that it came out. 
For the longest time, I didn't know that was my anxiety. I just knew that was something that happened to me. Around middle school, I started to get depressed, and it progressively got worse as I got into high school. Everything just seemed kind of gray. And a lot of worthlessness, too. I don't have anything to offer. From the outside, I think I hit it pretty well. I was a straight-A student. I hung out with my friends. I babysat all the time. I was involved in my church youth group. I didn't let people see that there was something going on. That was what stayed closed behind my bedroom door. Things started to feel more heavy. I started to self-harm as a way to cope. I started having suicidal ideation. I told my mom, I don't think I can keep myself safe. And I know my parents were shocked when they knew how bad it actually was. It was on a Sunday night. My mom called Children's, their hotline. I was evaluated by a social worker. And I think it was honestly the first time I was completely open about what was happening. And I told my social worker that I didn't necessarily want to die. And I knew that I needed a break from what was happening, from all the things I was feeling. And death seemed like the only option. And I just remember crying to her and being like, I don't know what else to do. Like, I'm stuck. Here I was, completely broken. I could barely see the point in staying alive. I felt so ashamed of myself. And these people, they just treated me like a person. I felt validated and I had some hope. And like, you know, I knew that like, okay, when I ask for help, help is given and it works. And I knew that this break I was looking for could be found in a hospital room instead of dying. Today, I am in remission from my depression for the first time in who knows how long. I'm getting to know parts of me that aren't just anxious and depressed, Julia. I'm clean from self-harm. I'm majoring in social work, and I really want to work in behavioral health with children, specifically in a crisis or inpatient setting. I've started to become really passionate about advocating once I made it to the other side, because I almost didn't make it. You're not at fault for where you are right now. It's okay to be afraid, but I don't want you to give up. Because the thing about depression is it lies. You know, you gotta fight to be here because it does get better. Um, and all of these lies will eventually go away. Um, you just have to hold on because it doesn't get to win. It doesn't get to take you. Because so you're stronger than that and you're worth more than that and it's possible. Church, there is so much that God has for you as an individual and that God has for us collectively as a church. Raise your hand if you want to fight. We're going to close with a final hymn and uh, then I'll give a benediction. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.